I'd like to begin the sermon this afternoon by asking several questions. I'd like to get your mind in gear as we move into the sermon. I'd like you to think about a couple of things. What is your most important possession? What is your most important possession? What is your greatest treasure? What do you treasure above everything else? Would it be, a, if you're a guy or a boy, would it be a bike, a car, a knife, a gun? If you're a girl, would it be a doll, maybe? Would it be a dress? Would it be a piece of jewelry? Would it be your spouse, if you're a little older? Would it be a house? Would it be a souvenir, perhaps, that you got at the feast? In practical terms, would it be your savings account? It's not drawing any interest. <laughs> would it be an antique piece of furniture? What's your favorite possession? What's your biggest treasure? Let me ask another question. How did you acquire your most important possession? Did you work for it, save for it, and eventually buy it? Was it given to you as a gift? Did you accidentally find it? Or did you deliberately search for it until you found it? How did you gain your most precious possession? When we were living in Massachusetts uh, back in the 80s, we read in the paper that they were going to search for a sunken treasure ship out on the edge of Cape Cod. And they started dragging electronic instruments over the bottom in the uh, Cape Cod Bay. Started in 1982. And in 1984, after two summers of diligently searching for this ship, it was actually a pirate ship that sank near Wellfleet. Now, Cape Cod is like an elbow out into the Atlantic Ocean. And Wellfleet is on the inside of the elbow, about halfway out. And apparently a pirate ship sank out there in a storm and it broke apart. And it was carrying loot from 50 ships that the pirates had captured. There was gold, there was silver, there was ivory, a lot of, uh, a lot of valuable material. But two years after they began the search, they found the boat. It had broken up, the, the stuff in the boat had scattered over about a mile or two of the bottom. It was about 10, 15 feet of water. But half of the stuff was buried under five feet of sand. But after diligently searching for about two years, they found it. They found cannons, they found gold and silver coins, and they found the bell of the ship with the name on it, Wida. W-H-Y-D-A-H. You look it up on the internet, you can see what the treasure was. But after two years of searching, they found the treasure. They had a map. There was about 140, 150 men on the boat when it went down. Two men escaped with the story of what happened and about where it was. They had a map. Two and a half years later, they found it. How did you find 
How did you acquire the most precious possession that you have? Think about it. Let me ask one more question. Have you ever been robbed? Have you ever been robbed? When my wife and I first got married, we lived in a graduate ghetto in Pasadena. It was well known to the Pasadena Police Department because they were there periodically. They knew where it was. We were watching a movie one night in the summertime. We went to bed, and we forgot to close the sliding glass door. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and I had the feeling just before I woke up, there's one too many people in the bedroom. And I looked over into the corner. We had a metal bookcase over there. I had my keys and, and change on the, on the bookcase. And he must have bumped something. But I looked over there, and I saw this shadow against the wall. What do you do? Middle of the night, somebody's in your bedroom. I didn't have a gun. I dropped my voice as low as I could, and I said, Get out of here! And the guy ran out the door, but just as he ran out the door, he bumped the door just a little bit. So I come out of bed, start running, and I ran right into the edge of the door. You know, you've heard these jokes. Watch out for the door, the revolving what door. And that's about the way it felt. But he got out the front door. By the time I got to the front door, he was down the porch and gone. One other morning, my wife called me at the college where we were, I was working, and she said, did you take the television to get it fixed? <laughs> I said, I didn't know it was broken. Well, she said, it's gone. I said, what happened? She said, well, I went down to pay the rent, and I didn't lock the door, and I came back, and the television was gone. So it was somebody in the apartment building that saw her leave, came over, took the television, and left. Yeah, we didn't sleep very good after both of those situations because we didn't know who to trust in the apartment building. One other time we were in Mexico City after the feast with my parents. They were there visiting with us. And as we went to cross one of the streets, I saw half a dozen young people coming the other way. And they kind of walked between us. And my mom said something to my wife. She said, Sherry, watch your purse. We got to the cross the street. And my mom looked and her purse was open. She reached in and her wallet was gone. And she started to shake. Because it really shakes you up when things like that happen. Like I said, how have you felt if you've ever been robbed? You've got a sick feeling in your stomach. In the sermon today, I want to talk about an extremely valuable treasure. An extremely valuable treasure that some have searched for but never been able to find. A treasure that has been given to a few people that never ask for it. And others have just let it slip away, that valuable treasure. Some people never even knew this treasure existed. Some people today don't know that that treasure even exists. In fact, as you'll see in the sermon today, most people have been simply robbed of information about that treasure. So what's the treasure? 
What is this valuable treasure that some people have let go of? Other people didn't even know where to find it. That treasure is the answer to life's most important question. Why are you here? Why were you born? What is your ultimate destiny? Why are you on this earth? And when you study into the subject, many authors acknowledge that this is the most important question that you could ever ask yourself. Why are you here? What is life all about? And why were you born? You know, the subject caught my attention when Mr. Wally Smith gave a sermon here in Charlotte some weeks ago. And he made a very interesting comment. He said, whenever we do television programs and we talk about why were you born, we don't get the response that we do from programs on prophecy or programs on maybe prayer or the spirit world. So for some reason, we don't get big responses to that particular program. And I began to wonder, why aren't people interested in the answer to life's most important question. And then I began to wonder something else. Do we realize the value of the treasure that God has given to us to understand the purpose of human life? And I'd like to make this personal. Do you recognize the incredible privilege that you have been given to understand the purpose of life. I've entitled the sermon, Life's Most Important Question. Life's Most Important Question. And in the sermon, I want to kind of address a couple of these issues. I want to look at what the world thinks about the purpose of life. You can get on the internet, plug in the question. It's interesting what comes up. And I want to contrast that with our understanding about the purpose of life. I want to talk a little bit about how the world has been robbed of information about the purpose of life. Because it's not something that a lot of people talk about. And I will review quickly what the Bible reveals about the purpose of life. And then we'll talk about how the subject relates to you today. What do you do with that information when you understand the purpose of life? My goal this afternoon is to help each of us appreciate this incredible privilege we have been given to understand the purpose of human life and to appreciate the value of this treasure that God has given to us that we didn't buy, that we didn't go looking for. In many cases, it hit us right in the face before we even began to think about it. I'd like you to turn to a couple of scriptures first, just to put this in perspective. You turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians <clears throat> chapter 2. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a bustling city. 
on the western side of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. It was a terminus of trade routes coming out of the the interior, you put things on boats, send it off to Rome. It was a temple in Ephesus, the Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You know, the, the foundation of that temple was almost as big as a football field. It was huge. It was huge. It was an impressive city at that time. And Paul is writing to the church, and it's basically a Gentile church, but notice what he says here in verse 11 and 12. It will help us, hopefully, understand what God is doing with us and what he was doing with people being called into the church at that time. He says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by those uh, called circumcision, or by what is called circumcision, that is the Jews, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You didn't understand the purpose of life. You didn't understand God's way of life. You didn't understand God. This is what you were before God called you out of this world into his church and gave you his spirit to understand the truth. We turn next to uh, Ephesians 5 and verse 8. And we'll come back to this a little bit later. Again, Paul is talking to the people in Ephesus that had once been pagans but had been called out of that. He says, For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If you look this up in some other translations, the... Living Letters had an interesting translation of this. It said, your heart was full of darkness. In other words, in the past, your heart was full of darkness. Your mind didn't understand. But now your heart is full of light. Now you understand the truth. Now you understand the purpose of life. And for those of you that have been called into the church... You didn't understand the purpose of life. You didn't understand God. You didn't understand God's way. You may have prayed. I did growing up. I attended a Protestant church. I prayed and went to Bible study, went to church. I believed in God. But it wasn't until coming into contact with the church of God that I began to understand the purpose of life, understand Bible prophecy, understand the future. You know, I was in darkness, and so were you in most cases. Now, what does this mean? I'd like you to listen to some quotes. A fellow by the name of Hugh Moorhead, he was the chairman of the Department of Philosophy at Northeastern Illinois University. As a project, when he was in graduate school, he wanted to get autographs from prominent people. So he got a copy of their book and sent it to them. He said, would you comment on a question? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? He did did this over a period of years, and then he published his own book entitled The Meaning of Life, in which he just quoted what people wrote back to him. I put a copy of this on the information table out in the hallway. But there were some general answers Think about these answers and think about what you know. 
and what you've come to understand. General answers were to live, to survive, to procreate, to live as long as you can and enjoy life, to be happy, make others happy. James Michener, the writer of a bunch of uh, travel type of books, he says to have a job with a purpose and have friends. He was an accomplished writer. Louis L'Amour, who wrote Westerns, he says to be and to become. Is that enlightening? Is that exciting? Does that keep you focused? Uh, Others had um, some interesting comments. Will Durant, a historian, he says, life has as much meaning as we give it. In other words, figure it out for yourself. Come up with your own idea. Another person said, to search for the purpose of life is the meaning of life. You just keep looking, and that's the purpose of life. Another person said, the meaning of life is invented. It's not discovered. In other words, you've got to come up with your own meaning. A number of people were agnostics. Uh, one person said, I never thought much about the question. Another person says, I don't know, and if you do, please advise. Let me know. Another person said, your guess is as good as mine. When I find out, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a postcard. Another person said, the meaning of life is found inside a fortune cookie on a piece of paper with no writing on it. They don't know. They don't know. Some people that had some religious, religious leanings, they said, what a question. We can only have faith that there is a purpose. We must trust that there is a purpose for life. Um, Adlai Stevenson, he ran for president back in the, I guess, probably in the 50s or 60s. He says, there are some questions we cannot know. He was an educated person. Hence, we have to have faith. Carl Sagan, some some scientists here, he wrote a book entitled The Cosmic Connection. He says, there may well be no purpose for life. Now, these are educated people. Isaac Asimov, he was a science writer, again, back in the 60s, wrote a book entitled In the Beginning. He said, as far as I can see, there is no purpose for life. Now, these are educated people. Stephen Jay Gould, Harvard professor, he said, I haven't the slightest idea, but I enjoy it immensely, talking about life. Jonas Salk, he invented a polio vaccine. He said, life just is. Its meaning and purpose are as unknowable as the purpose of the cosmos. They simply don't know. Now, these aren't just new ideas. The medieval monk Bede, B-E-D-E, lived and wrote in northern England back in the 600s. In his book, The Ecclesiastical History of England, he quotes a statement made by an Anglican nobleman to King Edwin of Northumbria. He said, life is like a sparrow that flies through a room. Where it came from and where it goes, we have no idea. This is what educated people have to say about the meaning of life. They simply don't know. And yet your mind has been open to understand an incredible truth. 
This idea that the meaning of life is something that we choose it to be has some very sobering implications. There's an article in uh, the Wall Street Journal in November of last year talking about Napoleon's idea of his purpose in life. Napoleon said, I no longer regard myself simply as a general, but as a man called to decide the fate of peoples. My calling is to determine the fate of other people. The subhead of the article was, all Europe became enslaved to Napoleon's insatiable personal ambition. He created a meaning for his life that uh, had an impact on all of Europe. You know, this is what the darkness that we were once part of is. They have no idea about the meaning of human life. And yet God has given us an understanding that is not given to the world. Why is there so much ignorance about the purpose of life? Why don't people know today? Now, you know the answer to that, too, or you should. You know, this world has been robbed of a very marvelous treasure. You should be familiar with the scriptures. Let's go back quickly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. You were given keys in the Bible why the world doesn't understand some of these profound truths. Paul is writing again to the church in Corinth. Corinth was, again, a big, bustling city. A lot of ideas floating through that particular city at that time. This is where the with-it people lived, business people, travelers, traders. In verse 3 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, But even our, if our gospel is veiled or hidden... It's veiled or hidden from those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. Revelation 12:9. you might want to jot that down in your notes, where it says, Satan has deceived the whole world. He's not allowed the world to understand the truth. He's robbed them of the truth. And you can also jot in your notes Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through about 25, where Paul is writing to the church of Rome. And he basically says the truth about life has been suppressed or smothered or held back or kept hidden. And that that knowledge has been exchanged for a lie. It's been substituted or deliberately forfeited away. Now, what does that mean? And how does that, how did the world become deceived? I wanted to share a couple of other things with you. I came across an article in the Boston Globe. It was written September 16th, 2007, by a professor of law at Yale University. And the title of the article you would recognize Why Are We Here? He's probably a Jewish lawyer. 
The subtitle of the article, Colleges Ignore Life's Biggest Question. They just don't talk about it. Now, he was saying this. Now, Boston is kind of viewed as the Athens of America. <laughs> I think about 25 colleges around Boston. It's a, it's a knowledge hub of the United States. Harvard is there. MIT is there. Boston College is there. A number of other schools. But he's saying American colleges and universities have largely abandoned the study of the meaning of life. They betrayed students and deprived them of the opportunity to explore the subject in an organized way. And yet he was saying in 2007, there's a growing hunger among students to explore this subject. Why are we here? What's this all about? He said, prior to the Civil War, American colleges had religious roots. The Puritans founded Harvard in 1636. The Pilgrims landed in Plymouth in 1620. Sixteen years later, they had a university going. The purpose of founding Harvard was to produce an educated ministry in New England. That's why it was founded. He makes the comment, Puritans founded Harvard in 1636. They knew the answer to the meaning of life and made sure their students learned it. Now, they didn't understand fully, but they understood that they were there as creatures of God, to worship God, to obey God, to glorify God. They understood that much. He said in the 1920s, there was a movement um, basically in New England that college students should learn how to live, not just earn a living. This was in the 1920s. And I wonder if Mr. Armstrong came across some of these, these writings. Because this movement was kind of big in the 1920s, 1930s, emphasizing that students needed to learn how to live, not just earn a living. He says, today there's a growing interest in learning about the meaning of life. The upsurge in religious fundamentalism is a sign of the growing appetite for spiritual direction. The increased demand among students for courses about the big question of life. There needs to be a refocusing of education on the, the question of life's meaning. And then he says, now he's a lawyer. He says, to leave this study of the purpose of life to religion is a disturbing and dangerous development. We don't want religious people talking about this idea. He says, fundamentalists have the right questions, but the wrong answers. <laughs> about going to heaven as being the purpose of life. I think he understood some of that. Humanists believe the question about the meaning of life can be studied in a non-religious way. And what we need today is an alternative to religion. See, they're not going to find the answers to the questions about life if that's the approach that they take. Now, what I'm trying to do here is just illustrate the world is not looking in the right place. Educated people in the world don't understand the purpose of life. And yet you have been called to understand that purpose. You know, Edward Gibbon wrote <clears throat> a classic book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. This was published in 1776. And it's interesting in chapter 15 where he talks about the doctrines of the early church. And what he explains is they understood something very powerful. 
He said, the ancient and popular doctrine of the millennium was intimately connected with the second coming of Christ, that Christ with a triumphant band of saints and the elect who had escaped death or had been miraculously revived would reign on this earth for a thousand years until the time appointed for the last and general resurrection. He's writing in the 1700s. He said the early church understood and taught about the coming millennium. He says the assurance of such a millennium was carefully inculcated by a succession of fathers from Justin Martyr and Arrhenius who conversed with the immediate apostles to others. He says though it might not be universally received, this teaching about the millennium, the coming kingdom of God, appears to have been the reigning sentiment of orthodox believers. This is what drove the growth of the early church, understanding that the purpose of human life was to prepare for the coming kingdom of God. And then he says, but when the edifice of the church was almost completed, the temporary support of this doctrine was laid aside. The doctrine of Christ's reign on the earth was at first treated as a profound allegory. Well, it's just a story with much deeper meaning. Then it was considered a doubtful and useless opinion and was at length rejected as the absurd invention of heresy and fanaticism. Only fanatics believe that Christ is going to return and set up a government on this earth. This is what happened to that truth. This is what happened to that understanding. Will Durant, another uh, historian, made the statement in a book entitled Caesar and the Christ. This was volume three of the story of civilization. He said, Christianity did not destroy paganism. It adopted paganism. In other words, they began keeping Sunday. Again, the bishops of Rome began promoting this, keeping Sunday instead of the Sabbath keeping Christmas and Easter instead of the holy days. And when you stop keeping the holy days, you lose sight of the plan of God. You lose sight of the purpose of human life. This is what has happened. This is why the world doesn't understand the purpose of human life. And this is not just a philosophical concept. I came across a couple of articles in the Atlantic magazine, one in 2013, one in 2014. Studies have shown that people that have a purpose in human life are healthier. They have less depression. They're more motivated. And he makes another interesting observation. Let's go back to... uh, We'll do, that. we'll do that later. But basically he makes the point that people are healthier if they have a purpose in human life. He said people are happier if they understand the meaning of life. It's interesting. He also makes some interesting comments. He says that uh, many people want to be happy. But what they don't realize is happiness is fleeting. Happiness is fleeting. You're happy when your needs are satisfied. But once your needs are satisfied, then you're looking around for something else. He says, 
Human beings are unique in the sense that they are focused on meaning. They're focused on meaning. They want to know why they're here. And he says animals can be happy just like humans can be happy. But animals are not interested in meaning. And something separates human beings from animals. You know, you can see your dog is very happy when they get the food out and starts wagging his tail and things like that. They can be happy. My friend, when I was in high school, his mom got a little dachshund, one of the little wiener dogs. And that dog, anytime anybody walked into the house, would run around in circles and wag his tail and leave a puddle on the floor. <laughs> the sign of its happiness. <laughs> You know, we can be happy when we're full. We can be happy when somebody gives us a gift. But these are very transitory things. It still leaves you hungry if you don't understand why you're here, what the purpose of human life is. Understanding the purpose of human life is a lot more important than just a philosophical concept. You're going to function better when you understand the meaning of life. Why do preachers today, why don't they understand the true purpose of human life? Again, the Bible tells us. Let's turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 29. There are actually several scriptures in Isaiah. They give us a clue and help us understand why. The world does not understand the purpose of human life. Isaiah 29, verses 9 and 10. It's talking about the Israelites who had turned away from God. It says, pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They're drunk, but not of wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. And he's closed your eyes, namely the eyes of the prophets. And he's covered their heads. In other words, they don't understand. Isaiah 30, verses 9 and 10. says, This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to their seers, to their religious leaders, don't see. And to the prophets, don't prophesy or do not prophesy as right things, speak unto us smooth things. Don't tell us the truth. Tell us something that uh, is non-threatening. If you tell people this is the, the purpose of life, well, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I remember talking with a kid I went to high school with recently, a couple years ago. We connected at a high school reunion. He graduated, went on to become a senior vice president with one of the big insurance companies. And we started talking about what we were doing. And he asked me what I was doing, and I explained. And he said, Doug, so you think you found the purpose of life? I said, yes, I do. He said, congratulations. <laughs> he had been selling life insurance to a lot of people. He got caught up in a, a corporate merger and some other things, lost a job, or he took an early retirement, and he was frustrated. All he had to do was play golf, and I think he was bored. 
had a talk with another fellow that I went to college with. He went into the Peace Corps, was in Africa for several tours, went in Southeast Asia, came out of the Peace Corps, wound up as a one of the vice presidents for Chase Manhattan Bank. I met him in London one time before I came back from England. And we talked. We sat in a pub and talking over a beer. And uh, <clears throat> He said, now tell me, Doug, again, what do you do? I said, I'm a minister. He said, you preach? I said, yes. He said, I write articles on world events and Bible prophecy. And we've, we've traveled to you know, some of the same places, so we've had some interesting things to talk about. And then he made a comment. He said, you know, you're doing something worthwhile. He said, I was just down in Greece trying to get a rich old lady to put her money in my bank. He said, anybody can do that. He said, but you seem to be doing something that is, is worthwhile. Now, he was making decent money, more than I was. <laughs> but he sensed there was something missing. He sensed there was something missing. And it has to do with the purpose of human life. Isaiah 56, verse 10, you can jot that down, talks about the watchmen of Israel are blind and they're ignorant. They simply don't understand the word of God. They talk about it, they preach from it, but they don't understand it. And they're blind to the purpose of human life. Now, they may have parts of it, but they don't have the big picture. It's got to be frustrating to them in a way because they give their best pitch. You know, if you just make your decision now for the Lord, you can be in heaven. I mean, that's their best pitch. I remember sitting and waiting, and, and, what am I going to do up there? Well, you walk on streets of gold, and you can play a harp, and you can do all these things. And, is that what I want to do for eternity? Pling, 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 playing a harp. But that's their best pitch. You know something that they don't. I still remember uh, when we were living in Cape Cod, our boys were in first or second grade, and I had to go into one of my son's first grade teacher and let her know that uh, he was not going to be in her class in the next couple of weeks. Well, where are you going? We're going to a religious function down on Cape Cod. She said, well, I can bring him in every morning because I live on the Cape. I said, you don't understand. He's not going to be here. I said, it's a family affair. We're going to be there for eight days. And then he'll come back later. Well, that didn't satisfy her. That only kind of burned her a little bit. And then she said, you know, you're a minister. But your son does not bow his head during our moment of silence in the morning. I said, well, I'll talk with him. That was one gun. And then she let go with both. And she said, sometimes he looks at me like he knows something I don't know. <laughs> and he did. But that really bothered her. <laughs> But you know things that Harvard professors don't know. 
You know things that Bede, this medieval historian, didn't know. We came across another quote by Leo Tolstoy, Tolstoy, Russian novelist. He had wealth, he had fame, came from a noble family. About age 50, he said, I'm really troubled. Why am I here? What is my life all about? He didn't know. He didn't know, but you do. That's the treasure that God has given you. Jesus made a comment in Matthew 15, 14. That the religious leaders of his day were blind. And he said the blind are leaders of the blind. They're blind leading the blind. They don't know. They don't know where they're going. The bird that flew into the window and then flew out the other window. Didn't know where it came from. Don't know where it's going. These are the ideas floating around today that are alternatives that you could believe. But God has given you an insight and an understanding of something much more valuable. Here, just as a contrast, I came across an article on the Internet entitled, Does Life Have a Purpose? You can look this up. Does Life Have a Purpose? And the author makes a comment. Is that the United States is currently perhaps the most advanced, the most affluent, and most comfortable culture in all of history. But at the same time, it's arguably the most depressed, medicated, and directionless culture in all of human history. Our people have no idea where they're going. They have no idea why they're here. Life is basically meaningless for most people. They just don't know. But what's interesting is most of the religious leaders don't understand it either. When I first came back from England, I was renting an apartment. The lady that I was signing papers with, she says, have you read The Purpose Driven Life? Have you read the book The Purpose Driven Life? It's written by Rick Warren, who is... uh, a pastor of the Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, one of America's largest churches. He wrote a book, The Purpose Driven Life, What on Earth Am I Here For? was the subtitle. It sold over 20 million copies. So people are obviously trying to find out why they're here. He makes some very interesting statements. He says, life's most important question is, What on earth am I here for? He says, you can't discover the meaning of existence by looking within yourself. Become a navel gazer. (laughs) You're trying to figure out why am I here? He said, you can't figure it out that way. He said, great writers and thinkers are clueless. And they can only guess or attempt to create a meaning. He said, self-help books, self-help books help you succeed, but they don't reveal God's purpose for your life. You can be disciplined, you can be on time, you can work hard, but that doesn't tell you why you're here. He said, most ideas focus on the self. I came across a Mormon website, and they were answering the question, why are you here? Well, to be happy, 
uh, to learn to be like God so I can go back to heaven and be with God. But a lot of them was to be happy. Rick Warren mentions in his book, most ideas about the purpose of life focus on self, personal fulfillment, peace of mind, happiness, your career, your family. What do you want to be? I want to be a policeman. I want to be this. I want to be that. What are you going to do with your life? What's your future going to be? Who am I going to marry? Will I get married? Will I become a millionaire? These are the type of things that people focus on. It's all focused on self. He gives five purposes in his book. Now listen to these and compare them with what you understand about the purpose of life. He says one purpose is to love God. I would all agree with that. Another purpose was um, to be part of his family. I would agree with that. To be like him. would agree with that. To serve him. would agree with that. To tell others about him. would agree with that. is to reconcile others to him and to be ambassadors for Christ. Now these things are things we'd agree with. But he says nothing about a coming kingdom of God, nothing about reigning on this earth with Jesus Christ for eternity. He doesn't address any of those things. And so he gets part of the picture. He says to tell others about God's love and to get people to heaven. He said his dad apparently was a preacher. And he said, I got to save one more for Jesus and get him to heaven. They don't understand what you understand, but they're sincere, they're religious. He makes a couple of other comments towards the end of his book. He says, When the disciples ask about prophecy, Jesus switched the subject to evangelism. And he quotes Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Let's turn there quickly. Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This is when Jesus appeared to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. Verse 6, it says, Therefore they had come together. They asked him, the disciples asked Jesus, saying, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons, which God has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power with me when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus just didn't explain at that point in time when the kingdom was going to come. But when they asked him the same question earlier, Matthew 24, what did he say? Look for this, look for this, look for this, look for this, look for this. He didn't switch the subject. He stayed on the subject. He gave them answers. But Mr. Warren goes on. He said, um, he's quoting Matthew 24, verse 26. He said, the details of my return are none of your business. Well, you read the rest of Matthew 24. (laughs) He explained what the conditions were going to be. And then he, Rick Warren makes his own comment here. Said, Jesus said, focus on your mission, not on figuring out Bible prophecy. Well, this is not what the Bible says. 
So Mr. Warren has part of the picture, but he doesn't have the rest of the picture, and he's misleading people as if prophecy is not important. I still remember listening to a sermon somebody gave, not in our church, but I think off the Internet. A person said, uh, you know, I don't pro- talk much about prophecy because I don't understand it. But he was a preacher. He was a minister. See, God says in his word that the religious leaders of his day, Jesus Christ's day, and by implication the religious leaders of today, don't understand the truth of God. They don't understand the plan of God, and they don't understand the purpose of human life. We look quickly at the Bible. And Rick Warren does make an interesting statement towards the beginning of his book. He said, to understand the purpose of life, you need to let the scriptures speak for themselves. You need to let the scriptures speak for themselves. And when we let the scriptures speak, what did they say? We're not going to turn to all these scriptures. You can read the booklet that Dr. Meredith has written on your ultimate destiny or the one on the world ahead, what it's going to be like, where he goes through these scriptures. But let me just give you several. Turn, first of all, to 1 Corinthians. Where, again, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. This was a very, you know, sophisticated church, so to speak. A lot of business people there, educated people. Uh, you know, the jet sets, I guess, of that day that were making money and making the commerce work in the Roman Empire. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, he says, However, we speak among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Our message is a mystery to the world. They don't really grasp it. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers or or thinkers or leaders of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, the leaders of this world, the philosophers, the teachers, don't understand. What we're saying is a mystery to them. Now what is that mystery? You can go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, where God says, we're going to make man in our image. Human beings are made in the image of God to have dominion to rule over this earth. Revelation 5.10 says we're going to become kings and priests and reign on this earth. This is our purpose. That's why we've been called. And this is a theme that literally runs through the scriptures. If you go to Psalm 8, let me just pick up one example. You know, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God says, let us make man in our image. Let them have dominion over the earth, reign over the earth. In Psalm 8, beginning verse 4 through about verse 6, David is writing. Now, he hadn't forgotten what is in Genesis. He said, what is man that you are mindful of him, talking to God, and the son of man that you visit him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. As I mentioned earlier, both human beings and animals can be happy. You know, 
our youngest son has bought a dog. And it's, it's going to be a big dog. It's like a little horse. But this thing, because they've loved it a lot, it'll lay down on the couch and snuggle up to you <laughs> and lick you in the face. Here's this big hound. And it's snuggling up in your arms. And it's happy whenever you pet it and talk to it. See, we can be happy too. But the dog doesn't lay down in the corner and think, why am I here? <laughs> what am I going to be when I grow up? <laughs> it would be a big dog. <laughs> what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I think I'll be an engineer. They don't think about things like that, but human beings do. Leo Tolstoy, this famous Russian novelist, age 50, 55, he's wondering, why am I here? I'm going to die. What's going to happen after that? He said, I don't know. I don't know. This is the world, the darkness that God has called us out of. Let's go back to Psalm 8. You've made him, human beings, a little bit lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've made human beings to rule on this earth eventually. To teach mankind, human beings, the way to peace. It's not going to come out of a gun barrel. You're cutting off people's heads. They're not going to bring peace to this world like these Islamic fanatics are trying to do. It's not going to work. It's going to have to be a different approach, a different way. Romans chapter 8. Let's go there quickly. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8. Where Paul is dealing with this purpose of human life. And these are things people read right over. They don't fully understand. Romans 8 verse 14. Paul says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, when God begins to open your mind, he, he will bring you into contact with the truth. You know, some people have learned about the truth. At one point in time back in Worldwide, Plain Truth magazine was blowing down the street. Somebody picked it up and started to read it. In other words, another person, the magazine came to the wrong address, and they read the magazine. <laughs> another person found it in the garbage can, pulled it out and started to read it. God has ways of getting to people. I think Mr. Tyler has mentioned a fellow out in the Pacific Islands when the church came apart back in the 90s. He got down on his knees and was praying on a beach. God, what happened to your church? Where did it go? Please show me. And a day or two later, Tomorrow's World magazine or World Tomorrow magazine showed up in his mailbox. He'd been praying a couple of days just before that. You know, I learned about the truth whenever my brother came home from a year in Brickett Wood. He came home in the summer. I went home from, for a two-week vacation, I thought, in the middle of graduate school. I picked up a catalog in Ambassador College in December, and I looked at it. This is religious. What's he doing? I got home in the summer. He came home. I was kind of bragging. I said, I just purchased a set of great books. 20 volumes on philosophy. He said, what would you buy that junk for? He's my younger brother. <laughs> I said, what do you mean junk? He went upstairs and threw a booklet at me. 
1975 in Prophecy through another booklet happening, American Britain in Prophecy. He said, read it. I read it. I said, what else do you have? <laughs> he knew something I didn't know. God has ways of getting our attention when he wants to connect with us. Paul says in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons, or they're going to become the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, and again back into the world, but you received a spirit of adoption. We can become part of God's family. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You know, we're just not the result of of evolution. As Peter Dawkins, the atheist in England, he said, isn't it wonderful to know that you're part of a big process, this process of evolution? He said, it just happened. And you just happened to be here. What happens when you die? You die. And the process goes on, leaves you behind. He says, isn't that wonderful? You're not jumping up and down. (laughs) No, there's more to life than that. There's more to life than that. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Some people have commented, God is only interested in men. He doesn't address the women. 2 Corinthians chapter 18, verse 17 and 18, Paul says to the church in Corinth, Come out from among them, come out of this world, be separate. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters. My sons and my daughters. I want you to be part of my family, to develop my mind, my perspective, so that you can reign as I would reign. On this earth. Maybe jot down a couple more. Isaiah 30 verse 20 and 21. Where it says people will see their teachers. In the coming kingdom of God. People are going to see their teachers. And their teachers are going to say. I have no idea why you're here. (laughs) No that's not what they're going to say. They say this is the way. This is the answer. This is what it's all about. This is why you're here. We are having an opportunity now to prepare for this coming kingdom of God, to get ready for that. We're having an opportunity to begin to think like God. Mr. Armstrong used to talk about there are two ways of life, the give way and the get way. One is a lot more fun to live in terms of meaning. I've done some studies recently where kids were given an opportunity to give something away, and they were much more happy and satisfied when they gave something to somebody than whenever they got something. Because when they got something, it was only temporary. When they gave something away, they felt better. See, the world understands some of these things. I read a letter yesterday written by Dr. Richard Hart. He's the president of the Loma Linda Foundation in Loma Linda University in California. He was writing about his father. He said, my dad was a missionary, medical missionary. So was my brother, and so have I been, and so has another brother. He said, we just did a recent study 
of uh, graduates of Loma Linda Medical School and School of Health. And he said on a national basis, they were the most satisfied with their career of anybody else. He says because they had focused on giving. They were focused on giving, not on getting. And that was the gist of his letter. See, the world understands if you give, you'll get back. The Bible talks about that. The world understands some things. But we're going to have an opportunity to teach the world there is a better way. And it involves giving. It involves giving. Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. We're going to have an opportunity to teach the world God's way of life. The laws of God. The way to peace is to obey the laws of God. Whether it's at home, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a country, whether it's in the world. Isaiah 11, verses 5 through 9. So the whole earth is going to be filled with the truth of God. People are going to learn the purpose of human life. Kids are going to be able to play with wild animals. And that's going to be a lot of fun. How'd you like to have a baby elephant in your backyard? He goes up to the swimming pool, fills his trunk, and comes up to you, hi, <laughs> and sprays you with water. <laughs> or to have a baby lion curl up on your bed at night, and you might get squashed. They're heavy. But this is going to be the future. It's going to be a totally different world that we can prepare for now. I would encourage you to go back and you know, go through the booklets, your ultimate destiny and the world ahead, what it's going to be like. This is what you've been called to understand. The world thinks this is crazy. But if you can focus on that and talk with God, God, I want to be there. I want to be part of that. I'd like to help. God is the giver of every good gift. And he's looking for people that want to be on his team. We're going to have an opportunity to rebuild cities, to restore the earth. These are going to be exciting times, but this is our focus. It doesn't all end whenever we die. I'd like to conclude by just asking a couple more personal questions. What does this all mean to you? If you know the purpose of human life, what does it mean? How does it affect your life today? Do you recognize what you've been given? Do you realize in this book you've got a treasure map? A map to treasure that is buried from the world. But the world doesn't understand. Turn to John chapter 6. <clears throat> I want to talk about the scripture in the context of this search for buried treasure or finding a buried treasure. John chapter 6 and verse 44. You know, Jesus makes this statement to his disciples. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws that person. In other words, you can't understand the purpose of life unless God has given you that capacity to understand. 
And for those of you that are growing up in the church, well, I've, I've always heard this from my parents. I've always heard it in church. You need to realize that billions of people are not hearing this. You have been given the privilege to hear and to understand what the purpose of life is all about. There's a German professor I had in college. He was in the, I think it was in Hungary whenever they had a revolution. He got out. And he taught a German class that I was in Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoon. I didn't want to be in class on Friday afternoon. Most of the kids didn't, and he knew that. As we left class on Friday afternoon, he said, Don't take it easy. Don't take it easy. Don't take lightly. What he was saying to us was, you guys have freedom in this country. You're free to do whatever you want. He said, I just came out of a country where we weren't allowed to have freedom. The revolution in Hungary was squashed by Russian tanks. And people were killed because they just wanted to stand up and say what they wanted to say. He says, don't take lightly what you have in this country. And I would say, don't take lightly what God has given us to understand. Notice what Paul says again to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, he's writing to people who had money. There was a lot of business going on in Corinth. But people were being called out of that darkened atmosphere. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren. And I would ask, do you see your calling? For you see your calling, brethren. Now, not many wise, <clears throat> according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those which are mighty. You know, some people have said, I don't know what the purpose of life is. If you learn, tell me. Let me know. Or some have said, it's, there is no purpose. They look down on the idea. And yet, others have realized this is the most important question you could ever ask. And the answer is the most valuable piece of information you could ever find. Ephesians chapter 1. Again, this is misunderstood today by many people. But again, Paul is writing the church of Ephesus where this temple of Diana was. A lot of people traveled there to see that site. Ephesians chapter 1, he said, uh, verse 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That doesn't mean that God chose you specifically. God has a plan and a purpose that we should be holy and without blame before him, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. The word here predestined means a predetermined plan. God determined from the very beginning, I'm going to have a group of people, they're going to be called first fruits. 
I'm going to prepare them for the first resurrection. And they're going to work with me and work with Jesus Christ in changing the world. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you know, God looked down a million years ago and said, I'm going to be, this is going to be Joe Blow over here. He's going to be five foot three or five foot ten, have brown hair. It doesn't mean that. It means he's got a plan he's working out. He's called us to be part of that plan. James chapter 1, verse 18, maybe just jot it down. It says, we're a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's preparing us to be first fruits, to be in that first resurrection, to reign with Jesus Christ when Christ returns. If we can just appreciate that sitting here today is a very special, unique opportunity. Doesn't make us any better than anybody else, but is giving us an opportunity to prepare for a very exciting future that the world doesn't understand today. Now, the question what are you doing with this special calling? What are you doing with this special calling? How can you use this unique opportunity to prepare for the future? Are there any responsibilities that come when this treasure has been dropped in your lap? What is God looking for? You, know, you can read Matthew 25, talks about the ten virgins there. It says five were wise, five were foolish, five were prepared and looking for Christ's return, five were not prepared, they were busy doing other things. And the essence of that parable is if we're prepared and watching, there's going to be a reward. If we're not watching, if we're not preparing, then there's not going to be any reward. One of the phrases I think I used in the past in a sermon in a certain area, and when we left, they put it on a little card and passed it out, but it was something along the lines, if you are preparing, opportunities will come. If you're preparing, opportunities will come. What are you preparing for? Are you preparing for anything? What are you preparing for? What would you like to prepare for? In Ephesians, let's go to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. We started there, but let's come back to it. Again, Paul is telling me in church in Ephesus, uh, verse 8, you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, or your light has come on in your brain, your mind, and you begin to see and understand. In verse 11, he says, have no fellowship with the unfaithful works of darkness, but expose them. In other words, come out of that. Verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, making the most of the time, making the most of the opportunities that you have, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand the will of God. You know, what is God's will? Let's look at one other scripture, Second Timothy. It gives us an insight. And what God is looking for, what God wants to see. Second Timothy two fifteen. 
Start in verse 14. It says, remind them of these things, Paul says, charging them before the Lord not to strive, not to argue about words to no profit. Don't get involved with arguments that don't go anywhere. Be diligent, or as the old King James says, study or study diligently to present yourselves approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, able to explain and show people how to apply the words of God. This is a spiritual thing. We're nourished from the scriptures every day. Think about your purpose in life. Why are you here? What can you prepare for? Dr. Merrith gave a sermon at the family day on walking with God. In favorite scripture there, Micah 6.8. What does God require? Here's the answer to the quiz. <laughs> what does God require? That you love mercy, that you, you be just, and that you walk humbly before your God. You're not arguing about the scriptures. You just want to get on target. Build that relationship with God. Brethren, in the sermon today, we have focused on life's most important question. If you understand what you've just heard, if it makes sense to you what we've been talking about, you have been given a special opportunity to understand that billions of people in this world don't have. You have been given access to a treasure that the world simply doesn't even know exists. Let's turn to one other scripture. First Peter. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And think about this as we read it. And put your name in here. Peter is mentioning to his audience, he says, but you are a chosen generation. You've been called out of this world his own special, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brethren, this is you. This is your opportunity. You have been given a treasure. You've been given a map that leads you to that treasure to understand the purpose of human life. I'd encourage you, brethren, let's get busy. Let's prepare for an exciting and rewarding future. Let's make the most of this opportunity that you have been given to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God as members of his family for all eternity. This is the true meaning of life. And it is the answer to life's most important questions. So if you know the answer... Let me encourage you to give some thought to how you can prepare to bear fruit that God can use in the coming kingdom of God. It's going to be an exciting time. Let's appreciate, let's value that treasure because it's very precious.